0: Like for you to turn with me to the book of Luke. Well, we just saw a child dedication, so let's read about one too, huh? Yeah. For these three weeks in December that we have to minister the word, because Christmas is going to be a bit of a different service, New Year's is going to be a bit of a different service. But the first three weeks of December, we've committed to um, seeing and, and digging out the treasure of the Old covenant, the Old Testament promises and prophecies tying to the New Testament prophecies and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We're, we've been talking about how the world had been waiting for Jesus. Even those that didn't know it, they'd been waiting. Luke chapter 2. Simeon is at the temple. He's an old man. Mary and Joseph have come with Jesus, not expecting to meet anybody. They're not trying to make a big deal out of their arrival. There's been a big deal made in Bethlehem. Angels showed up. Shepherds saw it. I mean, there's, there's already been a big deal. But when they come to Jerusalem, they're just two regular people with a little child. This, the Bible tells us that because of the, uh, the ordinance of the law that they were told to bring the firstborn son, and that they're told to bring an offering with them. And so the offering, uh, if you were very rich, was like 2 head of cattle or, you know, some oxen or goats or something. But if you didn't have much money, uh, then the Lord said, bring two turtle doves. And so this is where we get the two turtle doves in the song, 12 Days of Christmas. The rest of the birds, I have no idea why they're there. But the two turtle doves, (laughs) that's why they're there. I can't explain that song to you. It's a weird one. Um, No, it's got explanations. But Luke 2 talks about them. They brought these two turtle doves. I don't know how you wrangle a child and two turtle doves all at once, but they did it and they pulled it off. And that's the last we see of those turtle doves. So we're not going to talk about what happened to them. That's it. They came to the temple, and and that's all you need to know about the turtle doves. But here's what we find in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. When the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, and he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death Before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And Christ is just our English way of saying a Greek word. Which is a Greek way of saying a Hebrew word. And the word is Messiah. So this man has a promise. I'm not going to die until I see the Messiah. The reason he has that promise. uh, You know which came first. the, The looking or the promise. And it seems like it was the looking that came first. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. He was righteous. He was devout. Devout means he was devoted to God like this was his obsession. He was righteous. He was devout. And he was looking for something. And so God honored that expectation. Now, I want you to know there's probably many, many people throughout the years, through the hundreds of years from Isaiah to Jesus or the hundreds of years from Micah to Jesus. There have probably been hundreds and hundreds of people that died waiting. But Simeon was special Simeon had a promise that you're going to see him so he comes every day and he he prays to the temple he prays at the temple and it says when he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents had brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law then he took him into his arms and he blessed God and he said now lord you're releasing your bond servant to depart in peace according to your word from my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. And peoples here is, is a word ethnos. It means every, every nation. Not just for the, for the Israelites, but for all peoples. Thank God for that, amen? Because most of us here, we wouldn't have any hope if it wasn't if we weren't included somewhere in there. And he says this. He says he's a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineul, of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years and lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84. This is tough. Seven years after she got married, her husband died. So what she does is she says, well, I'm not wasting my life. My husband's dead. I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to go and pray. I'm going to go be devoted to God. So she got married probably very young. And then to the age of 84, she's been serving the Lord. She's been praying. And she says this. Or the scripture says this about her, that she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers and at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's talk about the two things that these people were looking for, that Simeon and Anna were looking for. Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. Anna, was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now we could take this at, at very, very face value and say, well, they're looking for deliverance from the Romans. I'm sure that they want that. I'm sure that they're expecting that God at some point is going to do that. But it doesn't sound like that's the only thing they're looking for because if they were looking for that, they probably wouldn't be looking at a little baby from Bethlehem. They know that something more is happening. They're aware of something greater at work. You know, we, we read this a lot. and We don't actually talk about too often what consolation of Israel might, might even mean. What is the consolation of Israel? Anybody here really looking for consolation? Right? Is that, is that your number one on your wish list today? I want some consolation. It's not a word we hold in high regard, is it? You get a consolation prize, you're not too happy. <laughs> to be consoled, we forget what that might mean. To be comforted. Maybe you've heard the song, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. Can anybody here just tell me what that song's all about? Right? I remember growing up hearing, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ. Who are these merry gentlemen? Why are they resting? Why are we telling them to rest? And oh, tidings of comfort and joy. And so, we, joy, I get that. Comfort, what? They're already merry. These gentlemen are merry. Why do we need to comfort them? And maybe you're wondering this. Comfort and joy is something we find out throughout the scripture. So when we talk about comfort and consolation, it's the same word. And, and really, part of the problem is that the, our, our version of comfort and consolation is very shallow. Somebody needs comfort and consolation, what do we do? There, there. Here's a Kleenex. Um, I, you know, here's a hug, a Kleenex. You're snotting on my jacket. Don't do this too much. like we, we offer very, some cushy pillows or something. We, you know, I don't know what you need. But the consolation of Israel, I mean, this is something this man has been waiting for all his life. What he's not looking for is a there, there, it's going to be okay. He's looking for real salvation. Because he's been waiting for a Savior. He's been looking for a Savior. He's been looking for someone to fix all of this. Anna's been looking for redemption. They understand, now listen, they understand that that redemption, that that consolation is coming in the form of a person. That's why they're so excited about this kid. They know this is the one. How do they know that? Is there a halo over Jesus' head like we always see in the pictures? Can you imagine how freaky that would be to send your kid to preschool and he's got a halo on his head. I wouldn't want that, right? Jesus didn't walk around with a halo over his head. Nobody else is aware that this crying baby or maybe a laughing baby, whatever the baby was doing at the time, is the Messiah, is the Son of God. Nobody else knew this, but Simeon knew this. Why? Because he went into the temple in the Spirit. You see, the problem is, is we've trained ourselves to always observe through our physical senses and just say, well, this is what it seems to be based on your limited experience and knowledge. But as believers, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, you, the Bible says Jesus said this, and, and so believe Jesus Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will tell you things you don't know. He will disclose things to you that are to come. He will tell you everything he hears from the Father and I. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit. He will lead you and guide you in all truth. So so Simeon does not know that a baby is going to be the method of salvation until he shows up at the temple and that's who he sees. And that's when he knows. And maybe Anna hears the prophecy and something in her echoes. That's right. That's him. She goes and tells all her her group, her friends, everybody. She knows. She's got a network of people that know we're looking for redemption. Most people in the temple that day weren't looking for consolation or redemption. We had the uh, privilege on Friday of going to see Handel's Messiah in Edmonton, see the symphony do it. And uh, it's always been a thing I've wanted to see. I've always wanted to see that... uh, that production put on. I know it's not everybody's cup of tea. I mean, music's almost 300 years old. Some of you are like, 90s music is too retro for you, so 300. <laughs> Me too, I know. It's not really my cup of tea all the time too, but I really, really uh, was excited uh, to see this because what they do, what Handel did uh, in the 1700s was he put the prophecies about the Messiah to music and, and, and sung them, had, had choirs and, and, and uh, different uh, vocalists sing these prophecies about the Messiah. And then he gets to the point of the coming of Jesus. And they sing about the birth. And then they sing about the life of Jesus. And then they sing about the life of the believer. And then they sing about the worship in heaven in the book of Revelation. And so this is happening on a grand scale. I mean, we're going to the symphony in Edmonton and hearing the scripture preached better than I've heard most preachers ever preach it. And so it's really exciting. It's exciting when they're ta- singing worthy is the lamb. It's exciting when they're singing these, you know, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking when they're singing he was despised and rejected. But the, the beginning of, of the whole um, production begins with these, these verses, with these passages of scripture that are speaking to um, the promise of Jesus coming. And, and primarily they begin from Isaiah chapter 40, and I just want to read that to you real quick here. Isaiah chapter 40 this is, you know, 700 years before Jesus was born. Do you know that time is not a, an issue with God? Right. He lives outside of time. He is the creator. He created time. And so when he speaks hundreds of years before it happens, it's all at the same time with him. Right. From his perspective, we're living right now at the same time as, as Moses. Moses. We're living at the same time. You know what I mean? He knows how time works. He created it. But what I'm saying is he's, he's not waiting to see how things will turn out. As he says it, it's happening. And so when he spoke, this is just as real. It's not like hundreds of years away. It's, it's real. Isaiah 40 verse 1 says this, Comfort, O comfort my people. Why is he having to say this? Because if you've read the prophets in this timeline, in fact, most of the prophets in the Old Testament that we have written down a huge chunk of them aren't, aren't uh, prophesying in the best of Israel's years, or the best of Judah's years. They're prophesying in the midst of chaos and impending destruction. Isaiah has the privilege of being alive for the fall of Israel and also the fall of Judah. He's watched it. He's seen armies at the gates. He's seen the enemies coming, or right before the fall of Judah, rather. But he's been telling him it's coming, it's coming. He prophesied about the Assyrians coming. Prophesied about the Babylonians coming. Micah, living at the same time, prophesied these things. And so really, the first duty of these prophets is to warn people. Like, guys, you've turned away from God. And I keep telling you, this is the way to death. This is the way to destruction. You've turned away from your creator. You've turned away from the life giver. And you're going down the path of destruction and death. And he keeps telling them, turn around before it's too late. And they don't. And then they say, this is going to happen. And the prophets have to turn from saying, there's a chance you might get out of it to, this is what's happening. And in the midst of the prophecies about, you know, the enemy's at the gates and this is what's happening. And we brought this on ourselves. All of a sudden, God begins to say things like, comfort my people. And he begins to speak of redemption and hope and I will not leave you abandoned and I will bring you back to your land and I will restore to you everything that the, that the worm and the locusts have stolen from you and I will restore to you uh, your children that have been taken away in war and I will, I will restore and rebuild the old place. And, and, and they say, but Lord, we, we don't deserve this. And he goes, of course not. But I am standing next to my covenant love. I, I told you I would never leave you. And I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. Even when you're in Babylon, I will bring you home. So then he says this in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, let every mountain and, and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the promise right here. In the midst of, guys, it's going to get bad. In the midst of the Assyrians are coming and the Babylonians are coming. In the midst of all this, comfort my people. Well, how do I comfort your people? Telling them there's a silver lining in every cloud. Telling them "Ah, it's probably going to be okay. Things tend to work out. Or giving them something solid to hang on to. (laughs) I don't know about you, but false hope to me is worse than no hope at all. I'd rather you not lie to me. Don't say something to me that's not true. Don't try to make me feel better with something that doesn't actually help me. Now, maybe everybody's different, but I want you to know if if there were no real hope, maybe false hope would be the best thing. We could just die ignorant, right? But when there is real hope, the problem with false hope is it keeps you from real hope, you know what I mean? The The problem with thinking that you know if I drink, 5 cans of Pepsi a day, I will cure my cure my ailment or my disease is that you that you you'll put your hope in the Pepsi and the Pepsi is not helping you. Maybe it is, right? <laughs> Probably not. It's keeping you from really seeking treatment. Or seeking the healer. False hope keeps us from real hope. And so if there were no real hope, then Paul said eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But there is real hope. There is hope. There is life. There is resurrection so God speaks as he says, comfort my people. This is why Simeon is looking for comfort. He's not looking for someone to make him feel better. He's looking for something real. How do I comfort them? Tell them this. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Even though Jerusalem right now is giving the finger to God, speak kindly to them. And call out to her that her warfare has ended. Well, what's the source of her warfare? He tells us her iniquity. What's iniquity? It's, it's our rebellion. It's our sin against God. The problem with humanity is that, you know, we, 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 we do the same things over and over again, and we think we've progressed, but we rarely learn. And even though they've advanced in technology and they've built more things, they've fallen into the same traps that their forefathers fell into. And the problem with this is that at a certain point, a godly man like Simeon realizes what hope do we have? We did this to ourselves. That musical I was telling about in, in, in The Messiah starts with this, and then, and then they read the prophecy about how the Lord is coming. And we hear that and we get excited, right? The Lord is coming. He says, yet in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth. He talks about God coming. But then right after that, he speaks from Micah, and they sing these words. But who can abide his coming? Who can stand when he shows up? There's the realization, we've been asking God to come, but what if we're the bad guys? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Lord, intervene in my situation. You're the problem. Uh Uh-oh. Right? God, come and come quickly. What would happen, though? Think about it, because I know here as Christians we're thinking, well, thank God for the blood of Jesus, but imagine you're living before that. You're saying, God, come, God, come, Lord, come. And then he goes, are you ready for when I come? Uh-oh, I'm not ready. Please don't come. <laughs> Who can abide his coming, for he is like a refiner's fire? <gasps> I'll probably get burnt up in his holiness. And this is why, along with the promise of his coming, is the promise of, I will remove your iniquity. Later on in Micah chapter 7, he says, I will cast your sins into the sea. I will remove your iniquity from us, far from you. In Isaiah 40 here, he says, your warfare has ended. Your warfare has ended. Now all of you know that Simeon, when he saw that baby and celebrated the salvation of the Lord, that wasn't the beginning of the Romans leaving. That wasn't the end of war on the planet Earth. But the warfare with God, the warfare that has, has, has been uh, the, the source of all of this, is ended like, like God is forgiving and he's redeeming. These are the two things they're praying is consolation and redemption. You know, the problem with people that are looking for God's consolation is they're inconsolable by any other means. You and I, if we're looking for God's consolation, If we're saying, Lord, our only hope is you, here's why we're not always fun at parties. (laughs) We should be. I mean, I hope we're fun. But here's why sometimes Simeon might have been a downer. Because when your only consolation is the Lord, any other consolation won't cut it. I'm inconsolable by anything the world has to offer me. Money won't do it. Fame won't do it. Success by the world's definition won't do it. A nice word here and there won't really cut it. Temporary numbing won't fix it. Yeah? How many people try to console themselves? Console themselves with a substance. Right? We console ourselves with a substance. We say, I just want to feel numb for a while. I just want to forget. You don't fix anything. In fact, things are usually worse when you're done. Or we console ourselves. Take, I just need to take my mind off it. Let me just watch some Netflix. Season one is done. Season two. Just turn my brain off. But you know, nothing has been accomplished. Nothing's been fixed. Right? Because, because what, what we're, all we have are, are just coping mechanisms. But what the Lord has is the answer. What God offers is something. So, so Simeon is, is weighed down and, and, and full of the knowledge that we can't get ourselves out of this mess. We made the mess, but we can't get ourselves out. What could we ever do to, to redeem ourselves from what we've done? We did this. We did it. But he's full of hope because he's read these prophecies and they've been passed on from generation to generation. The oral history has said it. They have trod the ancient path and it's been passed on from generation to generation. A redeemer is coming. And when they open the scrolls and they read it, it's it's confirmed to them again. I will come again. And when I come, this is what I'm doing. I am bringing a new covenant to you. And there's hope again. So Simeon goes from being somebody that would probably be, you know, the most depressed guy to being one of the most joyful guys because he believes God. Right? So why are we joyful? I mean, if if all we were we're aware of was our own shortcomings, we would be the most depressed people on the planet. But we we should be the most joyful because we are aware that our Redeemer lives and we will see him. And that he has done what I could not do. That his mercy took my past and nailed it to the cross. His grace put me in in that same coming out of the grave through the resurrection. And while my past is nailed to the cross, my future came out of that grave new and redeemed. And with a purpose and with a destiny and with Christ in me, the hope of glory. We have hope of glory. There is consolation. We've been waiting for it. We've been waiting for a Savior. The only thing that's going to bring it, so when we say tidings of comfort and joy, next time you sing that song, you'll get it. Maybe you already did, but you'll get it even more. When you hear that, oh, tidings of comfort, I want you to think about comfort. The Savior has come and comforted his people. See, the first good thing is that you realize you need a Savior, right? The problem with all the people around Simeon, is not that they are not, you know, it's not that they're inconsolable and they refuse to believe God's helping. Most of them don't really think about the fact that they need it anymore. They don't need a Savior. Most of us get very comfort, comforted and comfortable in our own situations. Simeon's aware, I need a Savior. We need a Savior. Anna's aware, we need redemption. So they're waiting. Re- remember reading... A story of Martin Luther, who is a monk in the Roman Catholic Church who came upon the revelation that salvation was by faith alone. But before he came to that revelation, he was very depressed and miserable. He walked around just depressed, miserable. Because he was a man who had taken on his, taken on his own Guilt, and he walked around with it. He was aware of his own sin, and he walked around with it. He was miserable. He was inconsolable. He was just not a joy to be around. He would beat himself. He would make himself suffer, and didn't make it any better. One day, he's looking in the book of Romans. He's thinking about the fact that God is a just God. I'm not sure I want to meet a just God, because if he's a just God, I know what I have coming to me. But he comes upon this passage in Romans. And thank God he he was given access to this wonderful word of God and training to read it. In Romans chapter 16, he reads this. And he says, so it is by faith alone. And he writes it in Latin in his margin, faith alone. And he realizes that what I couldn't do for myself, God did for me. And he talks about the great com- consolation and joy he felt at that moment, the comfort and joy he felt when he discovered in the word of God what you couldn't do, Jesus did. And it was like he met the Savior for the first time again. It was like he met this. It was like I've been talking about the Savior all my life. I've been preaching about the Savior, but it's like I met him for the first time. And he resurrected that truth that had been lost to him, that it was by faith that Jesus did it. Somehow by his work I am saved. By grace through faith am I born again. And every one of us has a yearning, not only a yearning and a knowledge. So let me, let me just speak to you. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord and you came, to here, you came here on the fence, I'm aware that sometimes we're in that place. And one of the most beautiful and glorious things and merciful things God can do for us is expose our own nakedness so that he can put clothes on you. Because as long as the emperor is riding around saying, I have clothes on, he's a fool. But when you know you're naked, what did Jesus say in Revelation? I want to tell you, you think you're doing well, but you're not. He said you're naked, and you're miserable, you're poor, and you're blind. And Jesus doesn't say that to condemn them. In fact, the opposite. He says, so come to me, and I'll put a robe on you. Come to me, you who are poor, and I'll give you gold refined by the fire. Come to me, you who are spiritually blind, spiritually poor, spiritually naked, spiritually blind, and I will put salve on your eyes and you'll be healed. Jesus does not expose your lack so that you can just be miserable. Jesus exposes it so that he can meet that need. He can be the Savior. So that you pull up to the table and say, I realize now I'm hungry. I realize now I need you. And one of the greatest things that can happen to you is that you would get to that point that Martin got to where you realize, I'm miserable without a Savior, so I must need a Savior. Right? I want to read you something as we begin to to wrap this up. In Matthew chapter (laughs) 5. It's called the Beatitudes, but if you were like me growing up, that didn't have a lot of meaning, you know? Beatitude wasn't a word I knew. But literally just means the blessings. Matthew 5 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them who's them? The disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To know you have need. To to be poor in spirit means that you know you need something. That's what the state of poverty is. You know, listen, you could be poor in Canada and then go to another part of the world and they say, you're not poor, you're rich. So poverty is not just what you have, it's your realization of lack. It's, It's realizing I need something. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit because they realize they don't have it all together. They need something. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Why are they mourning? Why are they mourning? It's a man like Simeon, a man like Anna, like prophet Isaiah, like the prophet Micah, like the prophet Amos, like the prophet Zechariah. These people are mourning because they realize, Lord, we need help. And you might think, I don't want to be around somebody like that. I don't want to be around Isaiah. I don't want to be around Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. wrote a whole book about crying. I don't want that. Yet they're not crying because they're Eeyore. They're not crying because they're just emo and they're miserable. They're mourning because they've sinned against God. And they realize, Lord, we need you because we've messed things up. And while everybody else comforts themselves with temporary pleasures, these guys are realizing, shoot, we don't have a leg to stand on if we stood before God. So Jesus says, you who mourn, I've got good news for you. You're going to be comforted. How? Through me, through Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. You're going to be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? So we have... The first parts of these sometimes are the hard things, right? Poor in spirit, mourning, gentle when you don't feel like being gentle, hungry and thirsting. These are the things we'd rather not feel. But Jesus gives you the good news, right? The good news is that you're blessed. The good news is those of you that are mourning, you're going to be comforted. The good news is that those of you who are poor in spirit, this is the kingdom of God. The good news is that those who are gentle will inherit the earth. The good news is that when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, God doesn't say, good, I hope you're miserable. God says, I'll give you the kingdom. I will give you, I will satisfy you with my righteousness. The good news is thank God for those that are looking because they will find. The seekers will find. So let's never stop being seekers. Yeah. Salvation belongs to God, and so let's remember He's the Savior. So you might say, well, I'm a believer already. I'm, a, I'm saved already. I, I'm already. I already gave my life to Jesus. I already, he already wiped my sins away. He washed me. He, he cleansed me. What, what relevance does this have for me today? Well, number one, it tells us why this gospel is good news. Because somebody out there, somebody in your own life is right now miserable, and they don't know why. They're burdened down with the weight that they can't lift off their own shoulders. And you have good news. And to give good news, you got to receive good news. So the worst preachers of the gospel are those that don't receive it for themselves. How can you recommend a restaurant you won't eat at? How can you say, taste and see that the Lord is good if you're not pulling up to the table? Partake of his grace. Say the Lord is good. I, I am every day I'm a beneficiary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, guys, we are looking for the next phase of salvation. We're looking for more redemption, because the Bible tells us, Jesus told us very clearly, "I will come." Paul said, there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me, not only for me, but to all those who have loved his appearance. He wrote to Titus that God is looking for a people who are purified for his own possession, zealous for good works, eagerly awaiting the coming of the Lord, looking forward to the redemption. Jude tells us, this is how you should, in a world that's falling away, in a world with, with, with all this, this falsity, he says, here's how you stay on the right path. He says, you build yourself up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting anxiously, looking forward to the redemption. Looking forward to the return of Jesus. So we're still waiting for consolation. We're still looking for the redemption, aren't we? We've received it, but there's still something coming. Don't forget that. Peter said in the last days, people will say, what about that coming stuff, second coming stuff? Do we still believe that? He said people will scoff and say, you've been saying that for years. Nothing's changed. He says it escapes their notice that one day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years is like a day. And the Lord has not waited because he's slow. He has waited because he's patient and he desires all men to come to repentance and the knowledge of him. So God hasn't come. Jesus is returning, and friends, it it very likely is soon. Now, what my definition of soon is, and God's, might not be the same. But I know that we're nearing that time. How will I live then, knowing he's coming back? Because every time in the New Testament you see uh, the encouragement that Jesus is returning, it's always tied to how you're living right now. Live in such a way that you're expecting. You have hope of his return live in such a way that you know this microphone stand will pass away this monitor will pass away all this will be burned up by fire even the government systems we call so stable even the financial institutions none of it will last but what will last is the word of the lord so how should we live then we should invest in the eternal how we do that listen we live righteous we live holy we live like our father we love we walk in peace. We do the work of God. We fulfill his mission. And we look forward to the consolation. We look forward to redemption. Aren't you glad Jesus has consolation for your past and redemption for your future? Aren't you glad that, thank God, that when you are walking around saying, what hope do I have, a miserable person a miserable sinner like all of us that he said I don't call you that anymore that somehow when you received that gift you didn't stay a miserable sinner you became the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and aren't you glad that everybody stands at equal footing under the cross there's not one race not one age not one type of person Not one who has more education than the other. Not one who has somehow been picked as a favorite. Not one of us stands higher than the other one. But we all stand equal in need of a Savior. We've been waiting for a Savior. And the Savior has come. And those of us that know that are still waiting for His second coming.